Welcome to Startup Dads, a podcast about the highs and lows of building a business and raising a family at the same time. For more information about the topics we cover on the podcast and other Startup Dads related content, you can follow us on Twitter at Startup Dads Pod. I'm Amrit, co-founder of Hyper Exponential, a tech startup that I co-founded in 2017. It's grown from a two-person team working out of my kitchen to a profitable business with several large clients and more than 20 team members across London and Europe. I'm also dad to Evie, my first child, who was born last December. Welcome to this week's episode of Startup Dads. It's actually Startup Mums this week, and I'm delighted to welcome Rosemary Francis to the show. Hi, Rosemary. Hello, Amrit. Great to have you on the show. So, Rosemary, let's open with the usual question. What makes you a startup mum? Well, I founded my company, Alexis, about 10 years ago. And after founding the company, I had uh, two children, two little girls. Alexis has been acquired now, but it was the IO profiling company. We make tools to help people understand the way they're accessing data in supercomputer systems. So uh, supercomputers are used for uh, a huge number of critical aspects of modern life. Weather forecasts run on supercomputers. They're used for designing Formula One cars, for designing and testing aeroplanes, for designing microchips, as well as doing oil and gas exploration. Really anything that involves a large scientific simulation, we're simulating it no matter how big and expensive that is, is still a lot cheaper and quicker than doing it in real life. And we made tools to help people understand the way they're accessing data. And so they can understand when they have performance problems, exactly what's going on and and triage and troubleshoot those things really quickly. The company really came out of my experiences as a semiconductor engineer. So I originally founded Alexis to solve problems specifically in the semiconductor industry where not only do we do we use very complex supercomputers to run all of the applications needed to design a microchip and take it to market, but also the complexity of the way all of those tools fit together is really unique in that industry, but not necessarily that different from other problems in the high-performance computing sector. So we soon expanded to Um, to solving very similar problems in life sciences, oil and gas, and general sort of high-performance computing, things like astronomy data or design data. That is super cool. That is definitely one of the coolest startup things. We don't hear much (laughs) about optimising high-performance computers to solve like wicked problems like that, wicked in both senses of the word very often. So I suppose I'm super interested in picking up on what your life was transitioning maybe before the mum bit came along. You had a great top tier academic career and then you set up a startup early in your career. So how did that go? And I suppose what were the real surprises and unexpected highs and lows of going from research into building a really successful, really fast growing business? Well, it wasn't so much of a transition, actually. I did my PhD in the the computer lab in Cambridge, now called the Computer Science Department, and a huge number of undergraduates and graduates from there go on to start their own tech companies. There's a big plaque in the entrance, which is an ever-increasing kind of hall of fame. And 
the business course lectures are a very important part of, of the third year of the course. So it's very much expected that a large number of people will go on to start a company. I very much counted myself among one of those. I switched from maths to computer science because I thought the careers available to me as a computer scientist were more interesting from a business point of view. So it has always been kind of in my roadmap. It's always been what I expected to do. Obviously, the the kind of the exact, the when and the how and the what, I didn't always have in mind. When I left my PhD, I was sort of umming and ahhing about different business ideas and so on. Um, there wasn't anything so compelling. I felt the need to do it. But equally, it was in 2009, there was the big financial crisis. There weren't very many people hiring more speculatively. When you do a PhD, a lot of people think you've just been on a big gap year. And there was people who offered me graduate engineering roles that weren't very exciting. There weren't kind of creative technical roles available. And so I found myself rather bored and then effectively founded a company as quickly as possible in order to solve the problems that I was having in the job that I was bored at. <laughs> so That's very cool. And it's a very classic story, the frustration driven development, I call it, where you've got a problem and actually you're like, you know what, the best person to solve this is me. <laughs> yes, yes, certainly. Cool. So then maybe we can zoom forward a little bit. Really interested to know when did kids and family life intersect with Alexis and, and yeah, what were the things, the biggest impacts you felt when that happened? Well, obviously that was a huge change to the business and the business was just taking off and, and rapidly expanding just as I became pregnant with my first child. When I started the business, I wasn't thinking about having children. I didn't really think more than kind of six, 12 months ahead. I certainly didn't think I'd be running the company 10 years later. So I didn't in any way think through the impact of having children as a CEO. And I, although I had co-founders, they didn't work full time in the business. I was the CEO, the CTO, the head of sales, and the engineering manager when I fell pregnant with my eldest. So that was a bit of a crisis. The business was making money, at least. And so I could at least draw a salary. And that gives you a certain freedom. But yeah, there was a certain amount of panic that set in <laughs> when I realised the enormity of the task ahead. And I got some very good advice. Some people rather dismissive say, oh, this will be, this will be so good for the business because it will force you to step back and trust other people to get things done. And that certainly is true. But at the same time, um, I had to hand over the reins to people who weren't ready. I hired an assistant, which was such a good, such a good idea. I, I do not know what would have happened if I hadn't done that. In fact, the, the assistant I hired handed in her notice four weeks after I gave birth. So it could have gone better. Um, wow. And she handed in her notice 45 minutes after one of our senior engineers handed in his oh, notice. God. I'd been back at work a week after having my daughter. I'd only had three weeks at home. And when they both handed in their notice, I just I just sat in the canteen, phoned a friend and I was like, come and eat cake with me. <laughs> I can't do anything else today. So there were definitely a lot of low points. And when I had my second child, I arranged to take more time off, but was also able to because by that point I'd grown the team more. I'd hired an engineering manager. I hired someone um, to be an account manager. So there was someone picking up the phone. There was someone keeping an eye out as to what the developers were doing. And so at that point, 
I was able to take a bit more time off. Um, not a lot. I mean, I still went back after after eight weeks, but it was more time than the first time round. That's amazing. I mean, that is absolutely amazing. I suppose looking back on it now, what can you ascribe to the things that you did to make it work? Because that's not a long amount of time. And your business was very successful, right? It was material revenues, serious multinational clients. So I imagine, you know, my experience from large multinational clients is that they're generally reasonably demanding and reasonably unforgiving. <laughs> uh, so, so can you look back on things that, you know, worked really well that you may not have thought about at the time? So, I mean, some things worked well, some things didn't. Actually, when I was pregnant with my second child, I had a lot of joint problems and I couldn't walk properly. I was in so much pain, even when I wasn't walking, that I was really just not there. I was in the office, but I wasn't making any good decisions. Um, and the business suffered as a result. In terms of the customers, yeah, it was, it, as you say, I had international customers paying a lot of money for our software. And so the demand to be always available was there but we kind of manage expectations actually you build up uh, such a close relationship with the customers they all kind of emailed and asked about the baby and <laughs> and so on they weren't quite as unforgiving as you might imagine um but yeah there was just a case of just kind of get your head down and get on with it I was very fortunate in that when I had my first child my husband was able to take um shared parental leave which was brand new at the time, we had to do a lot of educating people who just, quite frankly, didn't believe that it was possible for a dad to take time off. And it was awful being up all night feeding the baby and then having to to go and work in the office and respond to customer problems, to staff problems, and to concentrate on trying to grow the business. So I think in hindsight, perhaps I shouldn't have been so ambitious. Maybe it would have been good just to just a, just a plateau for a bit, just aim for that. But I was very ambitious and I did at least try to grow the business still. And uh, yeah, that did have enormous health impact. And it really has taken me years to recover from going back to work so quickly. I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. If it's at all possible, take as much time off as, as you can. So I guess mums especially are under enormous pressure to do the right thing where the right thing isn't defined and knowing that I went back to work straight away a lot of mums who took the full year off feel the need to justify it to me as if they've taken the easy option or something like that and I absolutely do not think that if I'd have had the opportunity to take a year off I absolutely would. That's such a fantastic insight about the fact that the right thing is not well defined. There are lots of variables and time horizons and axes that you have to optimize along, you know, as a parent and a founder, you can only make the best call at a given time with the information you have and the resources you have available to you. I think that's, I mean, that's absolutely heroic that you managed to do that. And, you know, I, I'm interested to know, Rosemary, about if you could go back in time and maybe, you know, notwithstanding time, are there things you would have done differently structurally with the business to prepare or to put the business in a position that would have given you more flexibility or, or, or freedom to take the time? That's a very tricky one, isn't it? Because obviously I would love to go back in time and just not do all the things that didn't work out. <laughs> yeah, uh, if I, I knew in advance, for, for example, when I was pregnant the first time round, I had the flu and without properly recovering from the flu, I went to a conference 
where I was so ill, I just couldn't get out of bed and nearly ended up in hospital. Oh, and, it, and it took so long to recover. And that was miserable. And I didn't get any leads from the conference. Complete waste of time. Of course, I would like to just go back in time and say, don't go. On the other hand, just 12 weeks after having my daughter, when I was still breastfeeding, I boarded a plane to go to Houston for the day. So obviously three days away by the time you've been on the flight for a day each way. And that was how I broke into the oil and gas industry. It led to quite significant growth of the company. I mean, worth it is a difficult thing because it came at a huge cost. I didn't want to leave the baby when she was so little and, and took huge amounts of energy. But on the other hand, was really significant. And, uh, and maybe the business wouldn't be where it is today had I not done that. So, so yes, I would love to go back and get rid of all the stuff that didn't work. But you just never know what works and what doesn't work. I mean, I did... The second time round, I was just a lot more relaxed about if I was feeling unwell, then I just stayed at home and I took a lot more time off, just took everything a bit more slowly and therefore was able to recover more quickly and get back into the business and be more effective as a result. So I would say through and this is a case, this was long before I was a mum, I would work too hard, make myself ill and then regret it. (laughs) And so mostly what I've learned is that I should stop sooner and give myself time to recover and then be more effective when I come back. I can totally relate to that. I think my co-founder is very good at saying, Amrit, you run yourself into the ground and then you recover and then you forget that you ran yourself into the ground and you do it again. As you say that, I don't know if it's a characteristic of founders and people who you know, are inevitably going to, it's highly correlated or causative, I don't know. Um, but it definitely seems to be something that I hear and see in a lot of founders. I think if, as an entrepreneur, if you're aware of your own limitations, you'd never get anything done. Because, of course, when I started my company, I didn't know how to run a company. The first person I employed, I offered them a job. And then I Googled, I've offered someone a job. What do I do next? <laughs> <laughs> like, what? Well, what does an employment contract need? What is employment law in the UK? Uh, (laughs) So so I think you really can't be too aware of your own limitations and your own failings. Otherwise, um, otherwise you just you would you'd never get anywhere. You have to kind of blindly bulldoze ahead. Yes. I have to say it's broadly about looking at a number of things that look completely impossible having a go and then realizing that they're not completely impossible most of the time. Sometimes they are. <laughs> That's um, a really nice segue onto another question I wanted to ask you, because even notwithstanding the fact that you've had two kids while scaling Alexis, what was your life as a woman in tech back in 2010? Because rightly so, you know, the industry has really woken up to the fact that it needs to change its balance. And, you know, we have a much better, still not good enough, but much better approach to to women in tech. But back then, I imagine expectations of you as a working mum in an industry full of male dominated kind of stereotypes, you know, uh, did you feel any pressure or not? But I suppose maybe can you share your thoughts on that? Perhaps I've been very fortunate, but by and large, all the places I've worked, uh, whether it was during my PhD, afterwards when I was working in this industry, and when I worked with customers, by and large, they've been very, very nice working environments. And while I have been in the minority, and that's not always been a wildly enjoyable experience, it's pretty rare that anyone is actually malicious. And if there are any situations where people have made me feel uncomfortable or unwelcome, for the most part, 
it's um, very unintentional. And as people learn more and more about the issues, I think that's going to happen less and less. It's a, it's an educational problem, not an, an actual resistance to having women in tech, as far as I know. Obviously, you, you meet the occasional idiot who thinks it's fun to, to bully someone, but they bully everyone, like those people. It was rare that I was singled out, as it were. So, so yeah, by and large, it's been very nice. What I did find difficult was being taken seriously. I, I was 26 when I started Alexis and for the most part met customers by going to conferences and just meeting potential customers and telling them about our solutions and being taken seriously as not only the only woman in the room usually but also the only person under 40 was really hard and the number of times people just handed me their coffee cup because they thought I was wow. a waitress at a <laughs> at a networking God. event or something. Those were real low points. Very soon I learned to buy brightly coloured designer jackets so that at least people ask me why I'm there rather than assuming that I'm a waitress. So so that was better. And also just being 10 years older helps get over that. As the business grew, I was able to avoid situations where people didn't know who I was. I made sure that my reputation preceded me. I was able to go to a conference and for a an influencer, as some very well-respected and very well-known individual would say, hi, Rosemary, how are you doing? Love the product. So glad we bought them. And when you've got someone like that, who obviously knows their influence, obviously knows that the effect they have of saying that very loudly to everyone who can who can listen. That means everyone in the room suddenly wants to know who Dr. Rosie Francis is and what products this influential person has bought. And so there were so many people who used their influence to help me. And I'm immensely grateful to all of them. Um, and just being able to having the influence in the network to set up things like that, so that I wasn't put in a position where people didn't know who I was and could make unfair assumptions. That just improved with time, really. Yeah. The phrase that entrepreneurship is often, it's really hard until it's not. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's one of those funny things that I suppose you're being very modest. It probably kind of belies the persistence that's required to do that and the planning and kind of strategic uh, approach you've got to take actually the thoughtful approach that you had to take that probably guys wouldn't have had to do because the default assumption is probably not that they're that they're serving the coffee which sounds ludicrous doesn't it but like you say back then maybe that was the well, not that that was the unfortunately the state of affairs so maybe I can ask you now you've got two daughters you've clearly achieved huge amounts and you you know set the standards in many ways for what a business leader can look like irrespective of gender but what's your perspective on the state of women in STEM now and you know the world that you see for your daughters growing up if they decide to follow in your footsteps because you know if you look in the news and I suppose this is probably testament to social media you can pick whichever view you want you can say it's still terrible and it's not going to go anywhere you know it's great and it's much better or the jury is still out so I'm interested in your kind of perspective I suppose. I definitely think it's improving. I definitely think that my daughters have a very different world to the world that I grew up in. My parents were always very interested in technology themselves and very supportive of me as a nerd. And so I was always bought sciencey things. Um, and I was seen very much as an exception. Oh, Rose, Rosemary's different because she likes science. I think that's a bit of a shame, but at least I was allowed to be nerdy. Growing up, I think my girls don't have to be different 
there isn't so much of an assumption that being a girl and being sciencey or engineeringly minded are mutually exclusive. And I still think we're not we're not there yet. My girls like pink pretty dresses and that's seen as being mutually exclusive to enjoying Lego. But it's not at all. There's no reason why you can't wear a princess outfit or a fairy outfit while constructing a death laser out of Lego, which my daughters do all the time. I mean, why wouldn't you dress appropriately for your death laser construction? (laughs) That's Um, great. So obviously having sciencey parents, they're very lucky in that they get a wide range of kind of arts and sciences education. One thing that is endlessly distressing, and I think this is going to affect the world for a very, very long time is this pandemic has really highlighted the difference between the haves and the have nots. And the the kind of education that my daughters have access to is not something that a lot of people have access to. I think there is a, a huge gap between girls who are empowered to adopt STEM and girls who are still in a world where STEM is not for them and they don't have access to that information. A lot of that is changing, changing attitudes in schools. The Raspberry Pi Foundation has just the impact they have on children and young people and educators is absolutely astonishing. So I'm a supporter of the of the foundation. So I donate money to the cause because I think there's really no better way to have your money impact other people's lives and they're so effective they do research into stem education they support educators as well as running code clubs and maker sessions and learning at home resources so that's one way to try and democratize that access to stem education which actually my girls um, have i mean tv and things like that have great influence as well and what's lovely is the programs my girls watch have got female engineering characters who are happy and are well-liked and well-respected members of the team. The women in in STEM, when I was growing up, if they did exist, they were miserable (laughs) and outcast. So the fact that that attitude has changed and so it's normal for my girls to be kind of mending a train or something is the the sort of games they play. That's really nice. It's just, just become normal and I think that's what it needs to be. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I, I love your point about the fact that choosing to wear a dress and electing to build a death laser are completely orthogonal concepts. And if you think about it for more than two seconds, there's absolutely no reason why the number of fills you have on your skirt should affect the way you assemble a death laser. Um, that is going to stick with me. And I'm going to use that example with my little girl, <laughs> who definitely in a similar way dismantles most of my equipment while wearing a variety of different clothes composed in a completely random way that she's chosen herself because she's 20 months old that thinks that you should put shorts on your head which is awesome too (laughs) (laughs) amazing so i'd like to maybe zoom forward a little bit now because you built alexis you built an amazing business a business of significant value and you had the chance to and decided to sell it to to altair Uh, can you talk to me a little bit about the opportunity that came up and the factors that drove your choice and maybe we could talk a little bit about how maybe family life intersected there yeah, Alexis was acquired by Altair a year ago. So we are we are very much part of the Altair family now. The decision to be acquired, obviously, there were many, many factors. After running Alexis for 10 years and building up the company, I was looking to the next challenge, kind of got Alexis to the point where I knew how to run that business. With the business model we had, 
we were selling direct mostly and I was still very much uh, a central part of that sales process and that's just not scalable so we definitely see the acquisition as an evolution of the technology so just taking the technology and taking it to a much wider audience Altair was a great choice for acquisition because our products sit alongside other HPC offerings at Altair and are very complementary, looking at integrating those tools, not just to work together better rather than coexist, but also what we can add now we're all one team. There's the kind of one plus one equals five approach where we can um, build so much more. Now we've got two pieces of a puzzle to put together and, and cooperate. So that's very exciting from a technology standpoint. It's also very exciting to work with a worldwide sales team. And it's also really important that Altair has got the culture that will allow my team to kind of continue to operate in the way that that we enjoy working. I didn't want to kind of break the collaborative atmosphere that we have. And Altair is very much the same in, in that mutual respect, very collaborative way of working. But also I wanted to make sure that there is the room in the company for me to make a difference to the company and actually grow my career. So I'm still the owner of our products. I'm still very excited about the directions we can take the technology, obviously with the new opportunities that have been opened up by our parent company. But I've also taken on a role as chief scientist to kind of widen my view and work more strategically across our HPC or supercomputing product range. So that's pretty exciting. And I think Altair is, uh, is a pretty unique company in that the founder and CEO is still in control of the company. Um, it's a large organization with 3,000 employees around the world, NASDAQ listed, but it's still an organization where you can just talk to people. There isn't that sort of big company atmosphere where, where you're kind of an, an ant lost in the, in the wilderness. Uh, it's still almost got that kind of startup feeling for a lot of what we do. That's really cool. So just from the way you talk about that, it certainly doesn't feel like, you know, I was done with this entrepreneurship gig uh, and that was my motivation. It sounds like it was much more, actually, what's the next chapter for Alexis and the scaling of it, you know, as a the business and product being slightly different things? And where does the next chapter of what you've created go? Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, very much. I think my children are now three and five. And I think anyone who's a parent knows that kind of around that time, you start to get your life back, as in the children sleep properly now, they kind of play nicely, you're not quite on call 24 seven in the in the way that you are when you've got very small children. And that's, and that gives me kind of a huge amount of extra energy. And it's energy I want to put still into the product, but also into the, the wider collection of of things that I can do now. So yeah, that's pretty exciting. It is a, a very nice place to be. I'm, I'm still very fortunate in that my husband, even after he finished paternity leave, he went back to work part-time and that's been hugely important. I mean, I couldn't do this without his support because while, while I was traveling, um, while I was at the office, someone needs to be looking after the children Obviously, you can get childcare in place, but there's a limit to how far that goes if you're both focusing on your careers and putting in those extra hours. And so I'm enormously grateful to him, endlessly patient with me texting and saying, something's come up, I'm not going to be home till nine <laughs> or whatever. He just texts back, K. 
<laughs> I know that feeling very well. My wife now says, is it actually five minutes or an Amrit five minutes? Listen, <laughs> Amrit five minutes is between three and four hours. It's a total team game building a startup, right? And there are several teams, including the family team. Yeah. Yeah. You need the family behind you. And my girls know that sometimes mummy's off working. And one of the first games my my eldest played when she was old enough to do make-believe was she put some chairs out in the living room and sat on them and said, I'm going to Texas. <laughs> I'm going to Texas like mummy. Or she would get out a book and a brick and she would sit there using the book as a laptop and would say, I'm working on a train because I always work on a train. So uh, you do see you do see yourself reflected in the children. And uh, yeah, you do need you do need their cooperation as well. For sure. I mean, I think that's an inspiring story, actually, to hear, you know, you want your children to see, you know what, that, that's what my mummy does, right? She goes and she makes great things and she works hard. You know, you don't want to do any sort of Shakespearean interpretation of your children's actions over an analysis. But it's great. You know, I often talk about this as I want Evie, I, I want her to see me building things and making things and to understand that, you know, yeah, I do work very hard, but, you know, I'm doing this to make great things. And, uh, yeah, I think um, it's a really cool thing to see. I hope Evie does the same thing uh, at some point. She already is very good at discerning all the gadgets that I have. It's terrifying. <laughs> she's she's 20 months old and iPad uh, is definitely a word that I didn't expect her to have in her vocabulary, but that's probably the, my fault uh, entirely. I mean, they pick up on anything anything you talk about. It's nice to hear my girls conversations now they talk to each other so yesterday they were having an argument about what sort of mortar is used in a road <laughs> because because they I don't know whether they've watched a program about building walls or something but they were listing all the different types of mortar you can use to make walls and but actually a road is different and they yeah they know amazing things they found a piece of farm equipment and um, the eldest said well, what is this and the baby said i think it's a water pump <laughs> wow <So>, really <laughs> that's that's super cool and yeah it's highly probable that you've got super smart kids but like you say their perception is something i think we definitely underestimate in children from a very very young age they definitely have a huge amount of that so rosemary i'd like to ask you the final question now before we wrap up which is what's the biggest lesson you've learned from your journey in entrepreneurship that you want to pass on to your kids oh gosh i mean there are so many lessons i suppose ask for help is probably the biggest the biggest lesson it may seem like people are achieving these great things by themselves but they're not there's always a team and i have so many people help me so many people mentor me so many people help my business help me in my home life my mother's always been on call the number of times i came home from business trip to find my husband had been ill and my mom had come to stay or something there's a team behind every aspect of what i've achieved and uh, and i wouldn't be able to do it without their help I wouldn't be able to do it without their advice. And and so not being worried about what I don't know, but being very aware of, of when I can ask for advice and how to get the advice and how to sift kind of the good advice, the actionable advice from the silly suggestions. Obviously, you can't you can't follow everything you're told. Otherwise, you'd never do anything at all. But definitely listen to others and then make your decision. That's about a million things I've just said, but. 
No, I think that's awesome. I totally agree. It's actually a really common theme. Occasionally when I guest on other podcasts and people ask me, what's the lesson, you know, what are the learnings you've had from, because this is the best thing about this show is I get to learn from awesome entrepreneurs like you, right? I get to talk to them and basically ask them all the hard questions that I'm struggling with. And, you know, people will say, what's the big thing that comes out? And the one you've said for the record is the one that comes out really strongly. As we said earlier, it's a broadly a sequence of almost impossible problems. And they're often impossible because you haven't done them before. They're not actually fundamentally impossible problems. Like you say, you know, your example of Googling, actually, God, I've got to work out how to offer someone an employment contract. I remember trying to work out where the fire extinguishers were. Because I was like, oh, God, we've got five people now. I need to have a health and safety policy. You know, where the fire extinguishers? I was like, this is definitely not something that I planned for when I set up a tech startup, was to work out where the fire extinguishers are. But these are the sorts of things that, yeah, they're tractable problems if you share them. So totally, I think that's fantastic advice. Well, Rosemary, your story is just unbelievably inspiring. And you're like lots of people I talk to on this show who do these ridiculously hard things and you make it sound like it's reasonably obvious. So that's the ultimate compliment <laughs> I, can I can pay you. We like to wrap up with a section called Startup Shoutouts, where we shine a light on someone or some people in the kind of startup entrepreneurial world that we admire. Startup Shoutouts. Is there anyone that comes to mind for you, Rosemary, that you'd like to give a shout out to? Oh, gosh, what a question. Now my mind's immediately gone blank. There are so many people I admire, so many great companies out there. So a lot of companies spun out of the computer lab. Dan Greenfield is someone I did my PhD with. He's got a company called Petagene and, uh, and has recently become a dad for the second time. He's doing a, a heroic job. He's from Australia, so he doesn't have a million relatives like I do to, to help out. So yeah, obviously, I'm a huge admirer of all the Raspberry Pi team. What they achieve is absolutely phenomenal, both on the on the device side, but but as well as the educational charity, as I mentioned. And uh, yeah, we just really have a huge respect for entrepreneurs who are who are giving it a go. Really, that's all you can ever do. And there's always an element of luck as well as judgment with any kind of success. And so I have huge respect for anyone who fails and tries again as well, as I know a lot of people around here have. Well, Rosemary, thank you so much uh, for coming on the show. Really, really great to hear your story. All right. Thank you very much for having me. Many thanks to today's guest. You'll find links to them and their work in the show notes. It would really help us if you shared the show with a friend or colleague. So if you know someone who might find this podcast valuable, please pass it on to them. If you'd like to connect with me, reach out on Twitter at Startup Dad's Pod. 